So, uh, we are working through the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And uh, it's it's interesting that you can come on up, Chris. Um, uh, Genesis gives us the Bible story of where we all came from. And, and there are plenty of things as you read through and as I read through the book of Genesis uh, that make me wonder, oh, man, uh, I got to believe this to believe the Bible. Like uh, the world is created in seven days and, and, and man was formed from dust. And there was this flood with, with all these animals, all the species on this boat. And there are several things in the book of Genesis that just really, you know, I, I really, I, is that reasonable? And, and so there, there has, a gap has developed between science, uh, or at least some of the assumptions of science, and the Bible. And, um, and I'm not near smart enough right now in present condition to speak to those gaps. But Dr. Chris Williams, who just goes by Chris because he's a down-to-earth guy, um, he's here to talk with with us about those gaps because this has become a passion uh, of his. So um, let's start with PhD from The Ohio State University in Biochemistry and all sorts of summa cum laude smart guy stuff. Um, currently, uh, tell us what you do. Um, well, I spent about 10 or 12 years uh, recently working in genetic screening, testing babies for genetic diseases. And uh, I wrote software to control mass spectrometers. And actually, every kid in this room, I'm sure, and anyone who was born probably since about 1970, has had a sample of their blood when you were a baby sent to a laboratory to test for diseases. And, uh, and if, if you haven't heard back, that means good news. But if they find out a child has one of these dozens of genetic diseases, we can either help treat them or, or change their diet. Uh, because all it takes is a tiny change in, in your genetics to have you have a serious disease. Um, and for example, one of them is called PKU. I don't know, how many of you drink Diet Coke or Diet Pepsi? Anybody? I'm not the only one, am I? If you ever look on those cans, when you're, you know, bored and you're looking, it says, warning, phenylketonuriax contains phenylalanine. And you think, what is a phenyl? The fact that you can even say that means you are <laughs> really smart. Well, phenylketonuria is one of those uh, 40 or so diseases we test for. And this goes back to the 1960s. It turns out that about 10% of all people who were in mental institutions for being severely retarded have this disorder. And once you can detect it in a child, all you have to do is change their diet, and they can lead a perfectly normal life. But if you don't detect it, they will become severely retarded by age one and will be totally unable to develop. So it's testing for these genetic things is really fascinating. So I've done that for 10 years. Uh, I actually still work doing laboratory software, and I have uh, just recently got my second U.S. patent. So. Okay. So you were not always a follower of Jesus trying to analyze the gap between science and the Bible, you had come to some atheistic conclusions. Yeah, yeah. I was, as I was a kid, I was one of those nerdy science kids that uh, I had a chemistry lab in, in the basement of our house, and uh, my mom used to complain about sulfur smells coming up from the basement. You know, it's amazing and, we were just allowed to cook with open <laughs> chemicals at 10 years old. I had one, too. <laughs> well... 
and I had I have I have radioactive materials that the science teacher at the school let me take, and all kinds of things that I, I still have traces of around our house today, blowing up hydrogen balloons in the basement, things like that. So uh, so I had a lot of fun with chemistry, and that led me into just a fascination with science, and also science fiction. I got heavily into that. But the more I got into science, and I would be reading the biology and chemistry and physics and, and evolution, I became convinced that evolution was a fact. Every, you know, I, I bought into it. The Carl Sagan was the, the big promoter back in the 1960s and 70s. Um, I was a big fan of his. I read every, every book on evolution I could get my hands on. And I gradually came to the point of, I mean, I was raised going to a, a church, but I wasn't, you know, a strong believer. But I pretty quickly abandoned that, became sort of an agnostic, and eventually considered myself an atheist, that I was convinced there was no God, that evolution could explain it all. And at one point in my high school class, there was a creation-evolution debate going on in a biology class that I wasn't even taking, but I heard about it and asked if I could go into the class, and I ended up jumping up and debating with the evolutionist side against the, the creationist side. So I was very much on the position of uh, evolution is an unequivocal fact that uh, it's true and that if you really accept all the consequences there really is no need to believe in a god and, and obviously the bible then wouldn't be true and and so it had a somewhat of a conversion experience and and then that led you to really man i have to deal with this if if i believe there's a god there's this bible thing here that's ugh. Yeah, that was, I had a very sudden, I wasn't looking for God or seeking him. It just kind of, he hit me over the head and I just knew that he existed and I had to make a commitment to him. And so I did that. And as I started reading the Bible, then I still believed in evolution at that point. And as I started reading the Bible, it was a really a challenge because the things I'm reading in the book, especially in the book of Genesis that we're going to be going through, and really all the miracles of the Bible None of that makes sense in light of evolution and if science is true and we're just particles and, and there is no God, there's just natural processes. So I really had to wrestle with a lot of that. And in particular, there were um, two things as I was reading in the book of John that, that got me, really forced me to think on this is Jesus said in John 3.12, he said, if I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And I'm thinking, if I can't believe what the Bible says about these miracles, then how can, or, or things that happened on earth, how can I believe in heaven or the resurrection or any of those other things that I believed were true? And another thing that Jesus said in John chapter 5, he said, if you believe Moses, you'll believe me because he wrote about me. But if you don't believe Moses and his writings, how will you believe my words? And that really gets you thinking because... Who knows what Moses wrote? Anybody here know what Moses wrote? Any books of the Bible that he may have written? The first five books of the Bible, which includes the book of Genesis that we're going through. So he, I mean, it actually doesn't say it in there, but that historically he is known as the author of the first five books of the Bible. So Jesus said, if you don't believe his writings, the book of Genesis, Exodus, and that, how will you believe my words? So that really posed a challenge to me because I had all these facts of evolution that I knew were true and yet the Bible was saying many opposite things so I just really ended up doing the only thing I could do at the time was just to pray and ask God to open my eyes and if you look in Proverbs it talks about if you seek wisdom and search for it as hidden treasure you know God will give wisdom and so that's what I just prayed and asked God to give me wisdom and help me to reconcile these two things so that really began it's been 30 plus years now that I've been really studying this and i've got had ups and downs and 
and I still have a lot of questions, but through that time I found out that much of what I thought were facts about evolution were not at all facts, but were conjectures or even totally erroneous. And uh, it's caused me to have a much greater ability to believe in what the Bible says. Okay, so the big money question to get things started off here. Um, it seems like the biggest issue in science Bible stuff is this whole uh, premise of did we come from apes? Evolution versus creation is how it's typically framed. Do you believe in evolution? Yeah, that, that's the, the million dollar question. And any of you who are in school or in the sciences or things like that, that's probably a question that somebody would ask you. Well, well do you, you believe in evolution, don't you? Um, you know, it's science. You believe in it. And the thing is, when somebody asks me that question today, my response is to come back with another question. And that is, exactly what do you mean by evolution? Because, you see, if somebody says, well, do you believe in evolution? There's evolution encompasses a wide variety of different statements and, and claims. For example, uh, a huge, uh, really, I guess the way of doing it is to divide evolution into two broad categories. One is called microevolution, and this is a term even evolutionists use. Microevolution, meaning small evolution, and macroevolution, or big evolution. And if we talk about microevolution, pretty much every example that you hear in science classes, well, here's the proof of evolution, is all microevolution. And I really fully accept virtually all of that. For example, slide number one, if we can bring that one up. How many of you have dogs? Anybody out here have a dog? Or cats, you know, same kind of thing. It's amazing. You look at the tremendous variety of animals out there. And what we know about dogs is all the hundreds of varieties of dogs have been bred, most of them, in the last few hundred years. And actually, dogs and wolves all came from a common wolf-dog type stock only a few thousand years ago. That's just actually an article came out um, just last week that they used to say it was hundreds of thousands of years ago that wolves and dogs that evolved apart, and now they're saying that it may have been as little as 10,000 years or so. So we, and in fact, today, dogs and wolves can interbreed. So they're really not, even though they're called different species and coyotes and uh, dogs and wolves, they can all interbreed and have fertile offspring. So there really is a dog kind that all these different breeds and that can be derived from. So in a sense, that's change over time, and that's part of microevolution, and I fully accept that, because obviously we have a little mongrel dog ourselves, and uh, you know, so I know that dogs exist. So that's something I question, I'd have no question about. Another thing that I accept is something called natural selection, or survival of the fittest. And you may hear that and think, well, gee, you know, natural selection is just common sense. So, for example, if, if a lion is out on the African plains and there's a herd of antelope and the lion starts chasing that herd, which antelope is it likely to catch? The fastest one, the healthiest one, or the sick one, or the slow one, or the lame one? You know, natural selection basically says that the animals that are unfit because they have a defect or something is wrong with them or they're less healthy or diseased, those are the ones that get eliminated. And that's true in nature. I mean, it's a sad fact of the way the world operates that the sickest and the weakest and the lamest in, in the animal kingdom will not survive. If there's a blind wolf, it's, it's going to die at a very young age. Now, among humans, it's different because we can help one another. But in the animal kingdom, survival of the fittest really rules. And a third example that you hear all the time about proof of evolution is antibiotic resistance. For example, how different bacteria, germs, can acquire a resistance to antibiotics so that they evolve to be able to survive. 
And that, that's a fact. That happens. What, what it turns out is not that these bacteria are inventing new chemicals, but they're just trading bits and pieces of DNA that other bacteria already have. And that's called horizontal gene transfer. And so it's just basically this bacteria over here is already resistant to penicillin, and it's actually able to give copies of its, its genes to other bacteria. And, and all of a sudden, the penicillin kills off anything that doesn't have that gene, and now the ones that do have it can multiply and take over, and now penicillin won't kill them anymore. So that's something that's a fact, antibiotic resistance. So I have no problem accepting you know, selective breeding of animals and plants, um, natural selection, antibiotic resistance. All these microevolutionary changes are clearly things that happen, and I have no problem with that. But the other category is really where the, the, what people mean when they ask about evolution. They'll give all the proofs of microevolution, so therefore that means you have to believe that life evolved from non-living material. The origin of life just came about on its own. That humans evolved from apes, which evolved from fish, which evolved from single-cell organisms. This macroevolution. In fact, it even includes how did the universe get here? You know, the Big Bang, all this kind of stuff. So that's macroevolution, things that took millions or billions of years to occur that no one was around to see. And what I would have to say is, I have no problem believing in microevolution, but that does not believe, mean that any of the macroevolution is true, because those are really two very different areas. Okay, so you have a few big deal uh, categories for, for your doubts for macroevolution, one of which is the complexity of the cell, which listening to you at the Winking Lizard where all great philosophy and science is discussed, um, I walked away just, that was a wow moment for me, was to hear you break down the complexity of the smallest thing that's out there. Technically, lizards can't wink yet. They haven't evolved that capability, but... Uh, so we established so that's, that. That's kind of, and, a, yeah. <laughs> but, um, uh, but anyway, if we can go to the next slide, uh, number two. Probably many of you have seen this, and this is in every science, you know, biology textbook when they start to talk about evolution. There was an experiment back in 1953 called the Miller-Urey experiment, where a chemist put some chemicals in a, some ammonia and water and stuff in a flask and put some electricity through it to simulate what the early Earth was like. And as a result, he was able to form some amino acids, which are the building blocks of proteins. Now, he didn't form all the amino acids, and he formed a lot of amino acids that are not used in living things. But evolutionists have, have jumped on this as to say, look, we can show how life evolved, because if you put electricity through a mixture of gases, you can make the building blocks of life. And pretty much almost every week on the news, you'll hear, if we find, all we need to do is find water on Mars, and then we know life can evolve. Because if you have water and the building blocks of life, life will just automatically happen. Because it happened on Earth, it can happen anywhere. But the reality of it is, is that life is not just a matter of a few simple amino acids coming together and boom, you got the first living cell. Because cells are far more complicated than we originally thought. In fact, Darwin uh, even himself said, well, you know, they thought of it as a little blob of protoplasm, like a little jello, you know, there's, it's pretty small, it can't be that complicated, it's just, you know, it's pretty simple, the simple cell. If we can go to the next slide. This is, you know, sort of a, a high-level diagram of some of the features in, you know, what might be called a simple cell. But as we find out, cells are not that simple. They have many 
complex structures that do all kinds of things involved, because every cell has to be able to take food from the environment, it has to get rid of waste, it has to convert that food to energy, it has to make, convert, convert the food to different kinds of building blocks within the cell, uh, has to possibly fight off enemies, all kinds of things the cell has to be able to do. And the reality is, even this diagram is a gross oversimplification. And if we can go to the next slide, that my background is in this, you can't really see any of the details of this, so I would like to encourage, I have a chart up front here. This is actually a sort of a photographic printout of that. And when you come, if you come up afterwards, you can take a look at this, that this chart shows about a thousand different chemical reactions where one type of chemical gets converted to another kind of chemical. And this is called the biochemical pathways or metabolic pathways. So in these simple cells, even the simplest bacterial cell can have a thousand to four thousand different chemicals and enzymes that convert one of these chemicals to a different kind of chemical. So the simple cell is far more complex than, than we ever imagined. And a lot of this information has only come about in the last uh, 20 years or 30 years or so. And this is zooming in on that one little red area you saw on the previous slide. This is zooming in. So this is about 1 40th of that chart there. So imagine, you know, when you get up close, you'll see what it's like. And this shows how each chem... Unfortunately, my laser pen has... I must be going... Let me see if that's... Uh, there we go. Is one chemical gets converted to another chemical, and this shows the, the enzyme. An enzyme is a protein which is made up of hundreds of little amino acids in the proper sequence, it basically is like a little uh, tool or a catalyst that causes a reaction to occur that would never occur without that enzyme being present. And so each of these cells has thousands of these different enzymes to cause all these reactions that are necessary for life to exist. And for example, I mentioned PKU, the one disease in babies that we check for. It involves this one enzyme right here called phenylalanine monooxygenase that converts phenylalanine to tyrosine. And if that enzyme has, it has 450 amino acids, and if one of them is missing or broken or changed, it causes the enzyme to not work. And as a result, that child will have this disease and be severely retarded unless you can treat them at an early age by changing their diet. In fact, let's go to the next slide. This is the sequence. As you can see, these little letters, MS, TAV, whatever, there's four, actually 452 amino acids that make up this particular enzyme. And if, like I say, one of those being changed causes it to no longer work. So on that chart, there's a, th a thousand enzymes. Each one of those enzymes has hundreds of different amino acids in a specific sequence. And if those sequences are not correct, those enzymes don't work. And that can cause diseases or miscarriages or all kinds of uh, bad consequences. So the, 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 what you see is the simple cell is not just a few amino acids but it's hundreds of amino acids in specific sequences and thousands of different proteins all within a cell membrane. And, and actually, there's a lot more to it than that. But it's far more complex than anybody typically realizes. So here's what someone like me takes away from that. For life to come from a pond, okay, that has to happen perfectly in one cell for there to be anything that can sustain life. But then that has to happen really multiple times at the same time during the lifespan of that cell for to get any kind of traction going so it's not like that just had to randomly happen one time multiple times those things had to come together right right the, the interesting thing is evolution 
the Darwinian evolution says that if a living thing has a minor change and it helps it, then it'll survive. But the one problem evolu Darwinian evolution has is how did that first cell get started? Because if you don't have a cell that can make a copy of itself, if it's almost living, but it can't completely make a copy, it dies and you're starting over from scratch. So that is the huge, huge, huge thing in evolution is the origin of life. And what's interesting, I picked up one of the more recent books by uh, Jerry Coyne that is Why Evolution is True. And the first few chapters go the typical evolutionary thing nowadays is it used to be, well, you can believe in evolution and still believe in religion. And now it's pretty much as if you, evolution proves there is no God, there is no need for a creator, there's no need for designer. If you don't believe in evolution, you're an idiot or ignorant or evil. You know, there's, in fact, that's even what Richard Dawkins has says, that you're either uh, insane or ignorant or, you know, wicked, you know, is basically what his accusation is. And so a lot of the evolutionists today, it's like, if you don't believe in evolution, you're crazy. Well, it's interesting, in this book, you know, talking about why evolution is true, buried in one sentence in the book that, you would overlook it if you weren't really reading it. It says, by the way, 80% of evolution is shrouded in fog <laughs> because we don't know how it happened. And the, the origin of life, we know nothing about. And so the, the key thing is, if evolution were true, you've got to explain how that first cell came. This book, this is a very recent book. He admits we know nothing about how that first cell came about. And, and, and when you talk about it, it's called chemical evolution, how chemicals became that first living cell. We, anyone who's an expert in that admits there's 30 or 40 complex problems that we don't have the answers to any of those. And all of those things will have to be solved before you can explain how a random mixture of chemicals could make that first living cell. So buy this house. You should buy this house, but we didn't put a foundation <laughs> in, but you should still. Yeah, yeah you have to it, believe it, yes. And, and it really, I mean, to hear, you, to hear you talk, one of the things that stands out is just, it reminds me of the playground. Because I think about in my elementary age, uh, like, like parachute pants, okay? <laughs> parachute pants are cool because cool kids wear them. Don't you dare question their coolness or you sit at the nerd dork table. Uh, they're cool because cool kids wear them and so they're cool. There's this same kind of, even among the smartest minds in the world of, this is true and if you don't believe it, you know, I'm right and you're wrong because you look funny. Um, th there's that, the... the, the it just reduces to that kind of a playground. If you believe that, you're dumb. And, and what's interesting is these same evolutionists are all in favor of promoting laws that you don't dare question evolution in school. That, in fact, I was involved in a thing in the state of Ohio where they wanted to just encourage teachers to ask questions, to, to debate the controversy. Evolutionists were furious. To dare question evolution it cannot be allowed. It should be made illegal. And it's kind of interesting, you know, it's like we don't make the flat earth theory illegal because if anybody says, I believe the earth is flat, any decent teacher should be able to give 50 examples to show why the earth isn't flat. You know, hey, let's call a friend of mine who lives in Australia right now and he is it day or nighttime there. Well, it's nighttime over there. Well, how could it be a flat earth and they have nighttime and it's daytime here, you know? Or, you know, looking at the, the positions of the star, you could show hundreds of examples to prove that the earth isn't flat. Anyone who's flown in an airplane sees the slight curvature of the earth and things like that, pictures from outer space. So we don't have to have laws that say that you can't teach the flat earth because there's no need to. But it's unusual that evolution is the one area that there's actually laws that evolutionists have put into place that you don't dare question it. And ironically, you know, 100 year, or 80 years ago, 
they were the ones that you know were complaining the scopes trial well there were laws against teaching evolution that's terrible we should have open inquiry and that but now that the tables have turned they want to shut the door and not let anyone question evolution and i think it's important for all of you one of my non-negotiables in this whole faith thing is if something is true it can be examined and everything's going to point to it being true and so i wouldn't want anybody to feel like there are questions that are off limits or that somehow oh, we shouldn't quit this is this is a place where I, I want everyone to feel like they can examine um, for themselves. Uh, so, um, yeah. you, you, in addition to the complexity of a cell, and if there's more, feel free to. Uh, you, you have quite a bit of expertise in just DNA, and that's led you to some questioning as well. Right, right. Biochemistry is actually the chemistry of living organisms, and really the the big key things in chemistry are the proteins, those amino acids that are the sequences of amino acids that make enzymes that cause chemical reactions to occur. But the question then you have to ask is, well, how does the cell know how to make all these enzymes? Because each one has this sequence of four, this has 452 letters in a precise sequence. Each one of you in this room has this enzyme that has the exact same sequence. And so the question is, how did that happen? Well, it turns out that as complicated as this is, it gets even more complicated because there's something called DNA. And how many of you heard of DNA before? Who knows what it means? Deoxyribonucleic acid, I heard over there. Good, good. So DNA is another piece, another super complicated chemical in the human body that controls, that has all the information. It's like the library that gives the information of how to build a cell and how to make it run. So if we can go to the next slide. If you look in a bacteria, it has a huge amount of DNA in it to make it live. Now, this is a dead bacteria that they put in a chemical that caused it to break open to lice, and the DNA squirted out of that cell. So all that squiggly stuff you see there, that's the DNA of that organism that used to be inside the cell when it was alive. And all that DNA is a code that tells the bacteria how to live. And if we go to the next slide, does anybody recognize what this is? Chromosomes, okay, and what are chromosomes? Yeah. Okay, they're little things that connect, and where are they? In your body, and what are they made of? DNA. And what it is, is all these chains of DNA are wrapped up in these little chromosomes. And what's interesting, there's a complete set of chromosomes in every single cell of your body. You have probably 10 trillion to 100 trillion cells in your body. Every single cell, which is microscopic. In fact, if you type on a keyboard, what's interesting, I didn't realize this till, till you know, you, in forensic science, you know, you see the police shows and that. This is true. If you type on a keyboard with, you know, out wearing gloves, you leave, every time you touch a key, there's 400 skin cells you leave on that keyboard. Did you realize that? And each one of those cells has a complete... All the germaphobes here are cringing. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but each one of those cells has a complete copy of your DNA. So what's amazing is that, you know, you, forensic science, they can find out a lot of information. So that tells you how tiny this stuff is. What is interesting, though, is these chromosomes, they're microscopic. You can't even see a cell, and it contains all these chromosomes. But if you took the DNA and stretched it out, it's over six feet long. 
six feet, a chemical that stretches six feet long, but it's squeezed up in every single cell of your body. In fact, if you took, I didn't mention this the first service, if you took all the DNA in your body, I mean, you wouldn't want to do that because you would die, but if you to take all your DNA and stretch it out, the actual chemical would be microscopically thin, but it would be like a tiny thread that would stretch to the sun and back, I think I have it in here on the back sheet, a hundred times. I mean, this is billions of miles that the, your DNA, it, and it's in your body. I mean, that's what's amazing, that it's wrapped up in its usable library of information. So, now the thing is, let's go to the next slide. What the DNA is, it is a sequence of only four letters, C, G, A, and T. And if you look at the handout... If anybody needs one, Bob and Pam are in the back, just raise your hand and... This handout is a sample of the sequence, uh, but everybody in this room has this identical sequence, maybe one or two letters different in your body. And this is from that same gene that I talked about earlier that causes PKU, that if one of the wrong letter gets changed in this sequence, it can cause you to have that disease. And if you look on the back, you'll see the pictures of the four, it's really not C, G, A, and T, not the le English letters, but those represent these four chemicals, cytosine, ad adenine, guanine, and thymine. These are the four DNA bases. So this DNA is actually a string of these four chemicals hooked together by sugar bases that is the code. And so long strings of billions of these are, make up your DNA. In fact, every cell of your body, you have three billion letters you got from your mother and three billion from your father. Actually, your mother gives you a few hundred million extra because she's extra nice. So you actually get a little extra DNA from your mom. But, um, and if you're a male, you have less DNA because the male Y chromosome is, is a lot shorter than the, than the X chromosome. So men even have less DNA than women. But, so you have three million, roughly three billion from your mother, three billion from your father, plus in every cell you have a backup copy of another three billion. So you have 12 billion DNA letters in every cell of your body. So if you wanted to print out that one cell of your body, which is the same for your eye and skin and hair and heart, and took that and you wanted to say, I want to print out my sequence, you would print out pages like this, 1.2 million different pages to print out your sequence. And that would be just the one copy. And then you'd have a backup copy of another 1.2 million pages. And every cell has all that much information crammed into it. If you took those 1.2 million pages, they would stretch more than 200 miles. So you think about that. Every single cell of your body has that much information. That's how complex you are to, to make you run. So this is the kind of thing is, the, this complexity is overwhelming. I mean, this is more than people ever imagined. Even, you know, when I was a kid, we didn't know what the DNA sequence was. Human DNA sequence wasn't fully first sequenced until 2001. So it's really very, very, in fact, the genetic code when I was born, that's how old I am, it wasn't until 1963 they even knew the, about the, how the code worked. So a lot of this is very modern science. But to give you an idea, well, if you ask an evolutionist, well, how did these billions of letters in the human DNA form? You know, how did we possibly get this? And they'd say, well, well, given enough time, anything can happen. You know, yeah, it's complex, but, you know, the world's been around billions of years. You know, maybe this can happen just given enough time. And to just give an example of how even simple things will not happen given a reasonable time, who would like a chance to win $500 by rolling some dice? Anyone want to win $500? All you have to do is roll dice. You don't have to pay to do it. Can I get an example? Somebody here, you want to come on up? Come on up. Come on. 
and I swear I will pay you $500 if you are able to do this, okay? Now, take these dice, and why don't we get down here, and if you roll all ones, in fact, I'm going to be generous and give you six ways to win. If you roll all ones, all twos, all threes, all the same, there's only 12 dice, you can, you, he can hold them in his hands there. If you roll them all, go ahead, and if you get them all, I'll give you $500. Whoa. Did he do it? Alex, you're the judge here? Uh, Joe, you owe us $500. <laughs> um, now, a couple fives, a couple one, three ones. Three ones. Okay. I think that's the big number is three ones, okay. three well, fives. Try. So. Let's give him a hand there for that. Now, now, if you notice, I wasn't sweating a whole lot of, risk of losing $500 here. The interesting thing was he would have had a better chance winning the Mega Lotto than rolling 12 ones. And people don't realize that's only 12 dice. It does, seems like, you know, if you play Risk or, you know, you roll dice, you know, you get doubles a lot and triples occasionally. But adding every little one extra bit of complexity multiplies it six times more difficult. So the odds are you would have to roll those dice every second. If we'd fed him dice every second and he was just rolling it day and night, nonstop, for 34 years to have a 50% chance of getting that. So... <laughs> So the odds are I, didn't, I wasn't risking a whole lot offering $500 for that to do. But for evolution to say that these billions of, I mean, getting the first 15 letters of this is about the same as rolling 12 dice, uh, maybe 15 to 18 letters. That's the same level of complexity of rolling 12 dice. So not only do we have 20 letters, we have 5,000 letters times a million. That's how complex humans are. And to think that this vast amount of information that controls how our whole bodies operate, how we start with one cell to form 200 different kinds of cells of our body, to form all the organ systems, your heart, circulatory system, brain, skin, all, all these different parts of your body, to think that that all formed by random chance is, in my mind, just totally incredible and unproven. Well, and, and for me, hearing, hearing this stuff, because, I mean, I, you know, when it comes to scripture, I'm willing to step out in faith. And, and there are those things for me that are, oh, yeah, I, no problem believing that. And other things, oh, man, I, I, I'm, I'm committed, though. I'm, I'm going to, I got this. You know, I can do this. Uh, but when I first talked with you about this, the, the idea of the dice and the thousands of dice that have to hit just perfect for billions. one point billions okay yeah, 1.2 million pages of that code all of a sudden it's man I, I don't know if I can believe that uh, yet what science says is believe that or you're dumb of <laughs> yeah. course it's that or you're a moron um, and so anyway that was for me of all the things one of the more impacting moments uh, was thinking, man, okay, so I have to believe that if I want to believe macroevolution. And, and that was a, was a tough sell for me. Yes, yeah. And like I say, even the simplest cells would have the equivalent of hundreds of pages of DNA code to make even the simple cells work. So to think about having, you know, and again, if that simple cell doesn't have everything to be able to survive, it falls apart and you're starting over from scratch. So it's like you have to roll them all at the at the right time to get it to work. So it's, it's a, the origin of life is extremely complicated. And then, like you say, the level of complexity of human beings and even animals, cats, dogs, I mean, the complexity of, you know, they have all the things that these animals can do to survive. It's just amazing. You know, you look at how cold the weather, it's, isn't it a miracle that the birds and squirrels and, and rabbits are able to make it through the winter? You know, 
there's nobody there taking care of them, that that's all programmed in their DNA so that they know how to survive and have the bodies and, and habits and, and behaviors to enable them to survive a wide range of environments. Okay, so you have the essence of a human brain on this table. And uh, when, when you describe one of yeah. your other biggies is the consciousness. Yes, yeah. Well, you know, actually, before we do that, one okay. thing is, is about uh, human evolution. Uh, that I, when we're talking about this DNA, that oftentimes you'll hear people say, well, we're 99% the same as chimpanzees. Well, that was something that was stated, and you may still hear people say that. That is totally wrong. And as of about 10 years ago, they started realizing if we sequence the DNA, there's at least 3% difference between humans and chimps. But still, that sounds, oh, we're 97% the same. That's still mostly the same, 97%. I mean, that's an A in a class, right? You know, so you're, you're almost there. But the reality is, is it's probably now a paper just came out in the last year that says it's at least 5% different. And so the more we look at it, the more the difference seems to grow. But even 5% doesn't seem like a lot until you realize 5% of a million, 1.2 million pages means that you would have four miles of this printout to describe the differences between a human and the nearest ape, which is a chimpanzee. So even the, the, that 5% difference between humans and chimps is still hundreds of millions of DNA base letters. So even though, yeah, there's a lot of similarity, the amount of difference is what really matters. And to say that chimps evolved into humans over a few hundred thousand generations is really a huge stretch. There should actually be not a missing link between humans and chimps, but there should be hundreds of thousands of missing links that are all slightly different from one another so that there should almost be an imperceptible, you can't tell where humans start and chimps end, you know, or chimps end and humans start. There should be, you know, an infinite gradation of tiny variations between humans and chimps. We don't find that at all. In fact, every animal out there, according to evolution, if we all evolve from a single cell or group of cells to all the tree of life, every animal should be com connected to, the to its predecessors by a gradual imperceptible link that you should be shouldn't you should have a hard time telling a dog from a cat from a deer from a bear but yet that isn't the case we have all these animals that are very distinct and there may be varieties of deer and varieties of dogs and that but you can you see a dog you know it's not a cat you know it's not a pig you know um, instead of whereas evolution would say everything should be gradually melding into one another so philosophically there should be thousands of missing links we don't have one but you should believe that or you're dumb. Right. Well, and even a lot of the so-called missing links, they're very, like the Neanderthal that you may hear about is a pseudo The reality is if a Neanderthal was in this church today wearing clothes and shaved, you would not tell the difference. I mean, you might think, hey, he's a pretty big guy or looks pretty tough or whatever, but you wouldn't, there would be probably people here that you would not be able to tell that difference. In fact, they're now saying, oh, gee, a lot of us have up to 8% of our DNA is the same as what a Neanderthal had. So Neanderthal was, again, just a variety of person. As much as Africans differ from Asians, differ from Caucasians, I mean, there's a wide variety of humans. So Neanderthals, I believe, are just, again, another, they are homo, they even are classified as homo sapiens. So they are humans. They could interbreed with humans. So they're just another, another race of humans, per se. So what, what people are looking at as missing links, there's varieties in humans and there's varieties in apes, but we don't find that those millions of missing links. So, did you want to... so there's a brain on this table. Yes, this is the other thing. 
So we talked about the origin of life, you know, that first cell, that even evolutionists, when you get into their details, they say we don't have a clue of how life started. Then you look at human evolution and you realize how complicated we are and the vast difference between humans and even the nearest chimp. But the, one of the other, I think the most important thing, that if evolution, we don't need a god to explain things, and evolution can explain it all, probably what's the most important thing to us as a person is our human identity which ultimately comes to our consciousness, our brain, our thinking, our mind. And if you stop and think is, what is consciousness? How do you even know that the person, look at the person next to you, how do you even know that they're conscious? <laughs> now that's a, this, is a, this isn't a, a joke question. The reality is, is none of us have any proof that the person next to you is able to think and is self-aware. All you see is motion, I mean, they could be a robot, right, or a zombie. And in fact, that's, it's interesting in philosophy, that is a big, this is a serious discussion thing in college, in research, is how do we know we're not, the, everyone else isn't a zombie and you're the only one who's conscious? Because there's no way to know. <laughs> well, it's, oh, who, uh, I think, therefore I am. Um, Descartes, Descartes, yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the only reason we can even know anything is because we think. So right. really, philosophically... Yes, the only consciousness you know about is your own. And what's interesting, I have here on this uh, table here, I have a, a bottle of water, uh, which is hydrogen and oxygen, H2O, right? So two, two different kinds of atoms there. Here's a charcoal brick. Anybody know what it's made of? Carbon. This is almost pure carbon. And then I have some fertilizer, yard fertilizer. I don't know what brand it is. It's uh, Scott's or something. I don't know. But it's this ordinary fertilizer. And it's basically a mixture of sodium, chloride, uh, chlorine, potassium, ammonia, phosphate, and, and sulfur, and various other trace metals and stuff. But if you take these three things together, water, carbon, and salts, mix them together and connect them up in the right way, you know what you can make? A brain. And when you stop and think about it, if evolution is true, your brain is just a bunch of atoms connected together. And you should be able to explain consciousness in terms of water, salts, and carbon. And yet we know water isn't conscious, carbon isn't conscious, these salts aren't conscious. Why is it when you connect these atoms together that all of a sudden they become self-aware and conscious? And what's interesting is science doesn't have a clue is why humans or any animals or anything have any form of consciousness. It's, it's really a huge mystery. So for evolutionists, if, you know, say we've explained everything, you know, consciousness is one of those huge outstanding dilemmas that they have no answer for. Now, sure, they could say, well, consciousness would be an advantage in evolution. Well, sure, if elephants could fly, that would be an advantage too, but that they, ha they can't do that. So just because you can explain why it's an advantage to have consciousness doesn't mean you've explained how these chemicals could suddenly become self-aware. And it's interesting in the Bible, in, uh, I think it's in 2 Corinthians, it says, who among man knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of God within him? And it's interesting that no one can read your thoughts. I mean, you may make expressions or look worried or anxious or stuff. Yeah, that, but those are... Spouses can read your yeah, thoughts. Okay, my wife reads my... <laughs> but I can't read hers. <laughs> I, yeah, there you go. <laughs> And that's like, who among men can read? <laughs> you know, there you go. It was in there for 2,000 years. Who among men? So, yeah, who among men? <laughs> that's a good one. So, um, but the thing is, scientists cannot read. In fact, you know, this whole issue of when somebody is brain dead or not, you, you, all we can tell is, is there electrical activity going on in the brain? We still cannot read the actual thoughts of what any other person is doing. And that's something that the Bible said thousands of years ago.
Okay, so lightning round now. Um, love your carbon dating stuff. Uh, I know one of the evidences that is often cited for the age of things and the development of things and fossilization and stuff is carbon dating. You have 8,000 year old something soybeans, or other right there. Yes. These soybeans, I actually sent these off to a laboratory uh, a couple years ago and asked them to be dated. And, or cart and actually, radioactive dating, let me step back. You've probably all heard of radioactive dating. There's various forms. There's uranium lead, there's potassium strontium, there, or potassium argon, strontium, uh, rubidium, and then carbon-14. And all these dating techniques, it's not like you can look at a, something and see, uh-huh, made 8 billion BC or made 42,000 years ago. All they are doing when they're doing a dating technique is measuring the relative amounts of different types of atoms or isotopes and comparing it to others. And so what, com what it comes down to is a whole series of assumptions of how much was there to begin with, how, much did the, how fast did the one change to the other, and how much do we have at the end. And out of all this, there's only one thing we know. We can measure what's here and now today, but we don't know the rates that they changed has remained cha unconstant over millions or billions of years. And we certainly don't know for sure what the original amounts were. It's all deduction. So there's a lot of assumptions going into it. But if you sent these soybeans away to be dated, they would date the, by the amount of carbon-14 that's decayed away. They would say these are about seven or 8,000 years old. Which you had done. But, right, which I had done. But I grew these soybeans in 2008 in a greenhouse. And the interesting thing was I knew that they would date with a low level of radiocarbon. And, and, and any scientist that I've talked to many people about this, and it's like, wow, no, I, they were all find it very interesting because it makes complete sense to them. I used a form of carbon dioxide that was from fossil fuels. And so I grew these soybeans in a greenhouse so they, they didn't get the carbon dioxide from the air. They got a different form of carbon dioxide, so they have less radiocarbon in them. So they, an evolutionist who didn't know that would think these are 8,000 years old, but they were really only, you know, four years old or so. So carbon dating is essentially speculation on possibilities. And that experiment just kind of exploits just the open nature of, and there's no way to prove whether it's right or wrong anyway. Right. It's all, it's I mean, you can accurately measure what we have today, but extrapolating into the past is based on all kinds of assumptions. And if any of those assumptions is wrong, that means you're your result is wrong. It's the same thing as saying weather prediction. You know, you might be able to predict what the weather's going to be an hour from now pretty accurately, but when you start talking about what's the weather going to be one week from today or one month from today, you know, what's the temperature going to be at two o'clock one week from today? You know, how much rain will there be? At the, we don't have a clue because all it takes is very tiny changes that what's called the butterfly effect. Very tiny changes can cause massive changes in just a short period of time. So that works going forward into the future, projecting the future. It's equally true when you try to guess what happened when there was no one around to observe it. You're making all kinds of guesses and assumptions, and the tiniest guess being wrong can make everything you speculate wrong. Okay. Um, quickly, when I talk with friends and things about talking with you and, and the expertise that you bring, um, and, and how it impacted me, one of the things that often comes up, uh, Genesis chapter 6 details uh, a man named Noah who was told by God, build a great big boat and put two of every kind of species, seven of certain kinds of species on the ark, um, and it's going to save you and, and the eight members of your family and all these uh, uh, species. 
and um, how am I supposed to believe that there was this great flood and how does it fit with all this stuff? And you, as a scientist who studied this stuff, have reconciled at least somewhat. Yeah. No, this was certainly, like I say, when I was an atheist and, and heavily into evolution, I mean, I, this was all ridiculous. You know, how could there have been a flood that all the, the millions of different kinds of animals that are out there today, how could they have all been in an ark? Those kind of things. Um, there's no evidence for this. You know, we have little floods and all that. But, it, but what, the more I look into it, for one thing, we realize how many different kinds of dogs would Noah have had to have taken on the ark to have all the kinds of dogs we have today? And wolves. Actually, only one pair of a wolf-type dog could have formed all the varieties of dogs we have today. How many people, you know, did it start uh, from Adam and Eve? The number of possibilities of different kinds of persons is in the uh, billions of trillions. The number, I mean, the, just by the different combinations of DNA. So you don't have to have a huge number of animals. In fact, there's probably only a few thousand at most of all the different kinds of animals, reptiles and amphib amphibians and mammals, that would have had to have been there because... You don't need to have every single minor variety. All you have are the major kinds. Lions and tigers, I don't know if I mentioned, they're different species. We know now that they can interbreed. And you can have a tiger lion or a tiglon or a liger, which is a male lion and a female tiger. Of Napoleon Dynamite yeah. fame. <laughs> so those, those actually exist and certain zoos have them. There's actually... Um, there's all kinds of other very interesting hybrids of animals that scientists would call different species, but yet we find out they're really the same basic type because they can interbreed. You know, mules, horses, and donkeys can interbreed. So there's a lot of things like that. Um, uh, but getting back to the ark, one of the questions is, I like Ken Ham has an interesting thing, is what would you expect if there was a worldwide flood? You would find millions and millions of dead things buried in rock layers all over the earth. And what do we find? You know, millions and millions of dead things buried in rock layers all over the earth. And if you go to the Grand Canyon, you see layers of sediment that are hundreds of feet thick that have fossils in them, you know, and, and stuff like this that evolution has a difficult time explaining how you would have these massive layers of deposits with all these intact animals if, you know, if they're really only very slow levels of sediment building up over millions of years. What's interesting, too, that, you know, how could there have been a worldwide flood? You've got mountains like Mount Everest that's five miles high, and, you know, there's no way that could have been covered by water. In fact, there's fossils on many of these tall mountains. How could that have happened? Well, the Bible doesn't say the world that we have today is the same as the world that God created. In fact, in Psalms, it says the mountains rose up and the oceans sank down. And so if the earth was more flat with shorter mountains or no mountains and no ocean troughs, there's enough water on the earth today to cover the earth to a depth of two miles. So potentially the floodwaters could have been miles deep over the entire surface of the earth. And then after the flood is when mountains rose up and oceans sank down. So um, there's some very interesting things. One other thing, too, that's interesting, if the, the flood is true in the story in, in the Bible, every human being in the world today is descended from those eight people on the ark. Noah, his three sons, and and their wives, so that's eight people. And what's interesting is in the Chinese culture, the word for large boat is made up of three characters. I know you've all seen Chinese characters. I couldn't draw one if my life depended on it, but you know, they're little squiggles and scratches. But a lot of them are made up of three parts. And the, this word for a large boat is made up of three sub-characters. And those three characters are a vessel for eight mouths, or eight people. And so it's quite interesting that this word in the Chinese language, which didn't come from Hebrew or anything like that, has a, a, the word for a large ship is a vessel for eight humans. 
And yet that goes back, you know, to the book of Genesis, which we'll be talking about, that eight people were preserved through the flood. And if there is evidence of any kind, even, even speculation of a worldwide flood, we had to make it somehow, right? I mean, there had to be something that, that, that saved that. So um, any other closing thoughts from you? And yeah. I know you have a source, a recommended reading list yeah, as well. Yeah, if we go to the next slide here. Um, there's, there's lots of great books, uh, especially if you have a science background or you've ever questioned evolution. Or, or, or had doubts because of what you hear. I mean, if you watch TV, evolution's a fact. There's nothing, to, there's no doubt about it. You're, you know, creationists or intelligent design people are routinely mocked and ridiculed and laughed at. So a lot of times, I know initially too, I, I was afraid to even look into this because what if I find out that it is all true and the Bible's wrong? And as I found out, the more I study, I run into all these things that evolution can't explain. So I think that the main thing is I would say is be as equally skeptical of evolution as evolutionists are skeptical of Christianity because you'll find out that they have more faith really than even Christians do. And uh, one thing is, is, you know, here I'm a scientist, I've got a PhD, but I may just be the one crazy guy out there. That isn't true. There's a lot of other people who are equally skeptical of Darwinism. And in fact, online, there's a statement called a scientific descent from Darwinism. And this basically says we are skeptical of the claims of the ability of random mutation and natural selection to account for the complexity of life. Careful examination of the evidence for Darwinian theory should be encouraged. So this is a statement that they was put out for any scientist who has a PhD in an area of science only, not in education or you know humanities or stuff, but only in science. If you agree with this statement, you could sign your name to it. And more than 800 PhD scientists from around the world have agreed to this, that they are skeptical of Darwinian evolution. So it's not just one or two people. In fact, there's... Uh, and that represents a lot more who would be afraid. Yes, because one thing that's interesting, there are numerous cases of scientists who have dared question evolution, who've lost their jobs, who've lost their research funding, who've been hounded out of colleges because, the, you know, we, the evolutionists are very intolerant. You know, they talk about academic freedom when it comes to areas of challenging Christianity or homosexuality or anything like that. But if you dare to question evolution, you're out, you know. And so I would say for every person who signed this, there could be 10 or more people who would sign it if they didn't ha risk losing their job. And uh, Chris has told me he's available, not only today, afterwards, but... Um, anything students any issues any just just get with me I'll, I'll i'll put the two of you in contact whenever it may be questions concerns things like that um you're a tremendous resource for us and we appreciate that thank you yeah, yeah I'm, I'm more than glad to talk to anybody or even if something comes up uh, six months or a year from now and you forget who this guy was ask alex he can put us in touch and if you have time afterwards come up and take a look at this chart i don't know uh if we still have it it's up here right it's sitting here, yeah. over here I think you'll find it very fascinating to realize this is something that's in every single cell of your body. I mean, it gives you much greater appreciation for how, when it says I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, now you're starting to see some of the little details that, you know, God has done so many things that, I mean, and this is really, I think, scratching the surface of what the complexity of life is, but it's amazing. So um, here's, here's just, just to wrap things up, um, the Bible would require you to believe some big things. So would science removed from the Bible, the platform of science that says the Bible is foolish, 
Um, there are some pretty big claims that, that this science requires as well. And, and I think it's a false choice to say to you, therefore you have to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, that, that's, that's a false choice. If you either believe science or you believe the essence of Christianity. Uh, but, but here is something that I do think you need to consider. Um, if creation itself points to an interested creator, like if this stuff is legit, then that means that, that God went to a lot of, of thought to create you. And maybe, just maybe, this creation... Uh, points toward a creator who wants to be known. Maybe he is a loving God who created the incredible things that we have to enjoy. And yes, there's a lot of bad out there. But there's also a lot of good out there and a lot that points to a God who is very interested in his creation. And, and that's for each of us. God allows each of us the opportunity to work through what we're going to believe about him. And, and so what I would love for you to do is to take very seriously your own journey with God. Jesus, the resurrection, uh, the lifestyle that Jesus came to bring works really well for me. And I think that if you explore it, you will find that to be true. Uh, but what I, what I really want to encourage is that you just enter the journey. Don't just write it off because you're a moron. If, if you don't buy into the, the science part of things, it can be reconciled. And, uh, and, and I hope that you'll, you'll decide uh, to take steps towards uh, learning who this creator may be. And is he, in fact, a personal God? Did he love us enough to take on flesh, pay the price for our sins so that we can connect with him? These are the things that we... Uh, have to work through as humans or I think we're missing a big part of the why of creation apart from the how. Thank you so much, Dr. Chris. We appreciate you. Let's pray and then um, you are dismissed. God, uh, I want to thank you for the you, you created this, uh, and it seems as though you created this with us in mind as a kind of centerpiece of your creation. And I believe, as do many here, uh, that not only have you created us, but that you desire to be known on a personal level. And I believe that, that you took on flesh 2,000 years ago and, and that you showed us a moral path of living, that, that not only did you create this, but you are redeeming it as well and that you are redeeming each one of us and calling us to the highest form of living, the most real life that we can live in relationship and friendship with you. And regardless of where we may be today, uh, whether we are just considering this or, or, or thinking through evolution, um, none of these doubts or fears are, are concerning to you uh, in and of themselves. What, what you're concerned about is, is us. And I pray that like any good father, you would guide us towards you, that you would guide us home towards you and um, pull on our hearts to, to the, the, the deeper places of reality, friendship with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a good week.